I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author James Greenblatt, MD. His new book is Answers to Anorexia, Master the Balance of Hope and Healing. Anorexia nervosa is a serious and potentially life-threatening disorder characterized by an intense fear of gaining weight, dangerous weight loss, and distorted body image. The one thread linking every single eating disorder is nutrition, or more accurately, malnutrition. Anorexia is a biological illness, fundamentally, sustained by starvation and malnutrition, whether self-imposed or the product of genetic, psychosocial, or environmental circumstances. Psychiatrist James Greenblatt, MD, consolidates research on the role of nutrition and nutritional deficiencies in anorexia that is at present are poorly integrated into clinical practice. He's the founder of Psychiatry Redefined and is chief medical officer at Walden Behavioral Care in Walden, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Greenblatt. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. So is this something, in terms of anorexia, people don't really associate anorexia, of course, that's why we're, you wrote your book, with uh, malnutrition. Uh, and you're saying, as I understand it in the book, that it's not enough just to counsel patients because they're not eating and it's a psychological problem, but the actual malnutrition affects the brain. And so there's a real physiological problem that that uh, those who suffer from the disease uh, have. is that, And so we need to have a different format for treatment? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've been treating eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, for, for 25 years. And for most of that time, uh, I think the medical community and the psychiatric community treated anorexia as a psychological disorder. The good news is the research has established quite clearly that it's a genetic brain-based disorder. So that's established, and everyone, nobody would argue with that now. But what hasn't changed is our treatment model. We haven't really integrated a biological or a nutritional-based treatment model, and patients are suffering. What happens specifically to the brain? What happens to the brain with this eating disorder? And then tell us how we have to treat it differently. But I'm assuming now you can look at the brain of people who have eating disorders and see the the malfunction or dysfunction as a result of malnutrition? Well, we're beginning to see changes. You know, I think the brain is still a mysterious organ. Uh, We do uh, clearly, uh, both for MRI scans and PET scans, and uh, we do know that the brains are different and uh, they respond to cues different. If you show somebody a, a chocolate milkshake with anorexia in a MRI scan, their brain reacts differently than if you show someone um, who's not anorexic. So there's lots of abnormalities in how the brain works, but it's not just brain um, problems. It's complete um, changes in physiology. It affects hormones. It affects digestion. It affects sleep and um, all the other physiological systems in the body, and that's why anorexia nervosa is a life-threatening illness. Well, given that, then what are the changes that 
we have to address as therapists, as psychiatrists, psychologists, what, how do you treat an anorexic given that you, the, the well, you say the malnutrition, um, what do you do? What should we be doing differently? Well, I think uh, the most important thing is um, getting a treatment early because at the early stages in, in early adolescence where we begin to see some uh, body image uh, distortion and perceptual changes and, and this anxiety that it's much easier to treat as this disorder becomes more entrenched uh, mortality rates go up and, and life-threatening complications go up. So I think early detection is most important. And, and the model that, that I've been using and seeing really fantastic results is just nutritional supplements. And besides helping and coaching patients to eat the food in front of them um, and to restore weight if they're uh, underweight, the malnutrition that's resulted in restricted eating for a long period of time so we need to provide them with the basic vitamins and minerals and essential nutrients, like essential fat, um, to support recovery. So it's aggressive nutritional supplementation. When you're doing aggressive nutritional supplementation and trying to do that with somebody who is anorexic, who has been, who's obviously it's if you can do it sooner rather than later, it's a good thing. But often it's they've been starving themselves for quite a while. Is it difficult? Isn't it? This, do you have the same difficulty with getting them to take nutrients as you would uh, getting the patient to eat better and eat more food? And not um, early on, because so many of these nutrients are going to help many of the, the symptoms that our patients are complaining about. So the digestive disturbance, the bloating and the pain on eating, um, that can be relieved oftentimes by um, these uh, nutritional supplements of zinc and sometimes probiotics. Sleep is improved by some of the nutritional supplements. Anxiety uh, is improved. So we're always working with our patients, helping them understand that this nutritional support is going to help them feel better. Uh, we're never jumping into the discussion that we're going to you know, force you to gain weight because that it just creates overwhelming dread and terror in a patient with anorexia nervosa. Now, typically, anorexia nervosa begins in adolescence. Uh, is, uh, as, uh, yeah, yeah. Most of the time, yes. And we're seeing earlier and earlier onset, we're seeing kids 8 and 10 years of age presenting with symptoms that, you know, 10 years ago would have been 16 and 17-year-olds. Uh, kids. Um, mostly adolescents, we see it, though, occur at any age, middle age, men and women. Um, but most often, it's um, uh, early adolescence that, if untreated, just progresses. What's the reason? Is there a reason, or do we know the reason? Do clinicians know the reason why it's, uh, it's uh, anorexia begins not as a teenager now, but with 8- and 10-year-olds? Well, I mean, part of my kind of nutritional deficiency theory is that, um, you know, there's a genetic vulnerability that we know. But in puberty, um, we have higher needs for certain nutrients, and um, the onset of puberty is decreasing. So we're seeing, um, based on lots of environmental toxins and hormones, that the uh, onset of puberty is decreasing, and I think that has some role in the earlier onset 
but also our, you know, the culture and the environment our kids are being exposed to in terms of body image and, you know, thin fit being not only the ideal, but being uh, uh, better. And and so kids are exposed to uh, social media with very, very concerning messages. What else triggers, because we, as you just mentioned, you can be 8 or 10 or adolescence, but it also can be triggered even in later life. What are some of the other events that would trigger uh, a, uh, an individual's starving themselves? Well, probably the most common, you know, uh, trigger, if you will, would be dieting. And um, so whether it's the child um, who was told by the pediatrician that they're 10 pounds overweight or the school now has these BMI report cards or a spouse or a friend looks at somebody and, and, and makes a comment. So dieting or a change in diet can be a trigger. And many people might be able to lose five pounds and then normalize their diet. But we know that diets don't work. And there are some kids and adults that are genetically vulnerable. They, they go on a diet to lose weight and it becomes a black hole of restricting and anxiety and then fear of gaining weight. One of the most common things we see in in kids is is actually changing to a vegan vegetarian diet as a risk factor for anorexia nervosa. Oh, that's interesting. Can you elaborate on that? Because uh, it always seemed to me that that was a good thing, not eating so much meat, not eating so much beef that... Uh, that it was, it was, and I think that is a, a belief that's held by many. Yeah, it's better to eat vegetables, better to eat more of the Mediterranean diet. But uh, you're saying that this can that this can be detrimental in terms of the nutritional value of just becoming. Uh, yeah, well, you're saying a vegan absolutely. as opposed to a vegetarian. That's a little bit different, right? Correct. I mean, and I think um, you know, there's good literature that a vegetarian diet is healthy for adults. We actually don't have that literature for kids because kids are not eating a healthy uh, vegetarian diet. They're not necessarily eating eggs and dairy and nuts and seeds. So what's happening, and there's the scientific literature to support it, that a vegetarian diet in adolescence is associated with higher uh, rate of relapse for an eating disorder if it does get treated or slower response to treatment and um, poor weight restoration. So we have hundreds and hundreds of articles supporting this. In my experience, treating thousands and thousands of kids and families, it's usually the vegetarian diet that slips into what you described as a vegan diet. So there it's deficient in in certain nutrients like zinc and B12 and amino acids, and these are essential, essential for brain function and and healthy digestion, and that's what uh, creates the problems for many of these children. Well, you've treated so many children, so many adults, all suffering from uh, anorexia nervosa. Give us an example of a treatment plan of a, let's start with an adolescent, actually, whose parent or parents or uh, whoever brings them into your office. And uh, where do you start? The, um, uh, you know, common scenario is the initial response to a child losing weight or, quote, getting healthy is a lot of praise. Um, and so the family and friends, you, you look good, you've lost weight, and uh, that praise um, kind of doesn't 
support getting someone into treatment early. So usually they end up in our office or in our hospital when the kind of weight loss has gone on for a long period of time, six or 12 months, and uh, then there's medical complications. Well, the first thing we do is, is a medical workup uh, because there are medical illnesses and uh, celiac disease, which many people have heard of, uh, intolerance to gluten, is a very common co-occurrence. So some kids might have a celiac disorder, um, and that destroys the absorption of certain nutrients, and part of that process could be uh, ongoing restrictive behavior and malnutrition. So we're looking at the medical causes, we're looking at nutritional deficiencies, and, and we're making sure if it's an adolescent that the family is in what's called family-based therapy because it has to be a, a family approach to get these kids back on track. That was my next question, the family approach, family-based therapy, but what if it's uh, there's a lot of resistance on the part of the family, of the parents and or parent, the kid, the child needs help and you can't, or it's, it may be impossible to engage the parents. How do you, what do you do? Well, we see it all the time. Uh, certainly it was much worse 10 years ago. You know, one parent is saying, I'm not going into treatment or both parents say she can figure it out on her own. Um, but we know uh, the only effective treatment for adolescent anorexia nervosa is what's called family-based uh, treatment. Uh, we help parents understand that this is a life-threatening illness, that the mortality rates are, are worse than some of our cancers, um, childhood cancers. So we stress the importance that this illness goes untreated. Um, it's, it's life-threatening. And engaging the parents in making sure that kids are eating and getting the proper nourishment so they can come out of this quickly. Because, again, as I said earlier, the longer someone stays in uh, the trenches of anorexia nervosa, the harder it is to recover. I think one thing that perhaps the general public and maybe some of these parents as well don't know that how serious or don't recognize how serious the problem is, that it is life-threatening. I think that's something that perhaps uh, not only the parents need to become more aware of, and I don't know how much involvement you have with the schools, if at all, in ter- in terms of being aware or enlightened about the, the, the disease. Well, I mean, I, I just need to share with you, as a physician, um, I didn't know a lot of the information on anorexia nervosa 25 years ago before I was in the field. I mean, I knew... Uh, it was life-threatening in terms of medical complications. Uh, these girls were malnourished and had heart attacks. But what I didn't know is the leading cause of death is, is actually suicide. Um, and anorexia nervosa is the highest suicide risk of any psychiatric illness. And these are just not information that we're teaching our doctors and our uh, medical community. So it's just not information that's passed on. But it is life-threatening, and, and suicide is a, a common uh, complication that is just not addressed uh, sufficiently. Some of it is due to the malnutrition. Some of it is due to the entrenchment in um, eating, and, and some of these kids would rather uh, die than uh, gain weight, and that's how distorted their brains are. So, do you, Are we making, I mean, obviously your book is something that's going to 
enlighten people and help them to become aware. Uh, you alluded to the fact that medical schools still aren't addressing this issue or the information isn't out there even for medical students? Uh, you know, medical students, psychiatry residents, and nobody gets training in eating disorders. You might get an hour lecture. Um, part of it, the problem is there's not a pharmaceutical solution. There's no medication approved. And, and that gets in the way of research because pharmaceutical companies fund a lot of the research. And I think the disorder is so challenging to treat because there's not many disorders where, by definition, the patients aren't necessarily looking for help because they don't think there's a problem. It's usually somebody, a family member, a school, a spouse, um, bringing them into treatment because that's part of the disorder, the perceptual distortion. I do think, again, what has changed over the past 10 years is academic scholars have clearly established that it's a brain-based illness, and that has changed some of the kind of uh, shame and stigma associated with eating disorders, uh, although it still exists. People look at someone with anorexia, and we see them in the supermarket and street, and we just think it's a weakness or that they should just go eat or gain weight, as we've done with obesity, that they could just lose weight and exercise. Yeah. Um, I think people our understanding has shifted. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry? Our, our, I, so I think our yeah, understanding has shifted. I think there is a tendency to look at the person who suffers from this disease and say, well, you have a choice. I mean, you, you're choosing not to eat eat or don't eat and, and don't realize the all the ramifications of, of starving yourself. I think the other thing is part of the shame is with parents, they blame them. They, they don't want to be blamed for this. After all, this is their child and their, their child's not eating and they are many times part of the problem. So uh, wrestling with that, I would imagine, is a, a, well, in family therapy is a real challenge. Yeah, one of the, one of the tools that uh, I've used over the years to help parents stop blaming their kids and kids stop blaming themselves and parents stop blaming themselves is kind of an evolutionary model. And, and there's a lot of interesting research um, that the genes that those individuals with anorexia might have were adaptive, you know, 20,000 years ago, um, 10,000 years ago when we had to forage for food and we had to constantly move and these perceptual distortions, uh, we looked in the stream and we saw a, you know, distorted plump face rather than emaciated face, we would keep kind of moving. But there was some advantage to these genes um, and helping parents understand that it is a, a kind of evolutionary adaptation. It is a brain-based illness. It's nobody's fault that that helps start treatment in a, a non-kind of judgmental way. Sometimes I observe people and I, I walk four miles a day and I'm looking at people and I'm thinking, there is kind of like this all or nothing part of our culture. I see so many people who are, you talk overweight, you talked about BMIs and, and uh, kids having to uh, report their BMIs in school and you're either fat or you're really thin and this idea of sort of being in the middle or just an average weight uh, is sometimes difficult to to uh, I, to to find, I, mean, I think there's a lot of this all or nothing when it comes to eating or starving. Uh, absolutely, I mean, food is you know such a powerful emotional um, 
tool for, for all of us and as a culture. And um, Extremes has been um, pretty much part of our both scientific community as well as our culture, at, at least for the past 50 years. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about food. We hear one you know, research article, um, and then a week later, completely contradictory. Um, it's a very, very powerful, uh, emotional part of our culture with um, both misinformation and, as you described, a black and white uh, approach to treatment. So you're Chief Medical Officer at Walden Behavioral Care. Uh, and talk to us about, I mean, you sort of, you gave us one example of uh, it has treating an, an adolescent who's anorexic. It has to be uh, based in, in family therapy, for instance. What happens when parents really re- will refuse to bring a child in? After all, this is somebody who's under 21, and you see that they're starving themselves. And what kind of, I guess, responsibility do you have to save the child or... How, you know, from, from a legal perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, because of the medical complications, it, it requires a, a, what we call an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary team. So there's always a, a pediatrician, a dietitian, a therapist, and a psychiatrist. So there's at least two or three members of this team. And, you know, most of the time we're able to convince parents your child is, is, uh, is seriously ill. Oftentimes, as I think you're alluding to, they, it's easier to get them to a medical hospital because they're dehydrated and they need IV fluids than to get them to a psychiatric hospital for eating disorder treatment. So oftentimes, they need to just go to emergency rooms um, periodically to get fluids. But there are times where we've had to threaten um, parents that their child needs to be um, in treatment um, because of uh, this life-threatening illness. But oftentimes, a medical admission is much easier for families than a psychiatric admission. And sometimes yeah. that's enough. Uh, most of the time, it's not. Yeah. How do people drop out of treatment frequently? And like, what's your success rate? I, I, the reason I wrote this book, the yeah. second edition, is because uh, it, it, it's, a, um, it's similar to substance abuse. It's a chronic relapsing illness. You know, if we treat it early, if we treat the 13, 15, 16-year-olds, um, you know, we're, we're going to be able to stop it, and, and recovery is just easier. But once we get the over 18, the 20, the 30-year-olds, um, they've had multiple, oftentimes, multiple treatments, gone to different treatment programs, been in residentials, been in hospitals, been in day treatment programs. So it's it's um, multiple treatment um Attempts are not uncommon in uh, anorexia nervosa. So, in other words, relapse is very common. As you say, if you don't catch it early, then it tends to follow you throughout your life. So, it's really critical, really important to uh, to start treating the problem earlier. More information, more awareness. And, and, yeah. Yeah, and and that's the core premise of, of my book is is preventing relapse because. I believe the relapse rates are so high because in hospitals and treatment programs, everyone's just looking at weight gain, the calories, but someone gaining, you know, 8 pounds, 12 pounds, so they're at a better weight, they discharge, but then they just relapse because, 
the nutrients that they've been deficient in haven't been repleted. The brain is still thinking like an anorexic. They still have the perceptual distortions. They still have the discomfort um, when they eat. So they quickly stop eating and, and relapse. With nutritional support, we've been able to demonstrate that we can prevent these relapse. Well, it's an important book, Answers to Anorexia, Master the Balance of Hope and Healing. And we've been talking to the author, James, Dr. James Greenblatt, psychiatrist. Uh, Dr. Greenblatt, give us a website and or websites to go to for more information about the book and about the work that you do. Yeah, the simplest is just my name, jamesgreenblattmd.com. And we have an educational platform with lots of courses on eating disorders and other mental health topics at psychiatryredefined.org. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It's great to have you. Thank you for having us. Appreciate you reaching out. Take care. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> 